0: Extraordinary success can make you rich and powerful, but it can also leave you incurious, blinkered to new possibilities, resistant to change, invulnerable, deeply unhappy, and not living anywhere close to your full potential. That's a quote by business coach, Karen Eldad, one of Lifestyle Brand Goop's top coaches for 2019. And today, Karen and I are talking about The Superstar Paradox. Can't wait to share it with you. Michael, hit it. Hi there, this is Susie Price of Priceless Professional Development, and you are listening to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast, where we cover everything related to helping you and the employees and the organizations you work in and support activate greatness and wake up eager. I'm a professional facilitator and consultant, and I started Priceless Professional Development, a training and development company in 2004, and we are experts in an assessment science called Trimetrics. And we help leaders and consultants use TriMetrics to assist in efforts to create a Wake Up Eager workforce. So we're all about Wake Up Eager here over at Priceless Professional Development. The assessment is exciting because you can use it throughout the life cycle of an employee from hiring making sure you have the right fit to onboarding, making sure you know how to communicate and work together effectively, to leadership development, pinpointing specific development needs, to conflict resolution, helping people understand each other and use that as part of the discussions when there is drama or conflict or tension. You can build relationships using this tool. And we also use it for those same reasons in team building. One of the things I'm super excited about is the opportunity to train and certify others to become experts in the assessments within TriMetrics. And we have self paced online resources for people to become a certified professional disc analyst, certified professional motivators analyst, and a TriMetrics expert analyst. And you can find out information about those certifications at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash certification. It is uh, such a joy for me to do that work. And it's fun because our guest today on the podcast is Kieran Eldad. Uh, She actually has gone through those certifications, uh, two of the three so far. And so we talk a little bit about that during our discussion. We provide thought leadership about hiring and development through the lens often of the trimetrics assessment. And we do that through our books, uh, our blog, and this podcast. And speaking of this podcast, we have a directory that you can find to see all of the Wake Up Eager Workforce episodes, as well as an app that you can download through iOS or through Android. And you can find all of that through wakeupbeakerworkforce.com. So wakeupbeakerworkforce.com will give you all of the information about our podcast and all the episodes, access to the links to download the apps And it will also uh, point you to uh, all of our episodes have extreme show notes. And shout out to Shauna Adonofi, our client services manager who manages that and does a great job of making sure the transcripts are there and the links are there and then it's accurate. So check all that out at wakeapigaworkforce.com. And I'd love to hear from you. If there's a particular episode, if today inspires you or provides results for you or shows you something new, reach out. Let me know. It helps me know that you're listening and it thrills me and I'm able to pass it along to people we interview and uh, people I have discussions with. So you can always reach out to me at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Susie S-U-Z-I-E, pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Susie. I promise that your message will be seen and responded to. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. That also helps people find us. So let's get into the particulars of today's episode. It's episode number 63. The topic is the Superstar Paradox, and we're with business coach Kieran Eldad. She spells it K-E-R-E-N L. Dad. And the show notes, so Superstar Show Notes that Shauna Creates, Every time we have an episode, it can be found at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash superstar paradox. Pricelessprofessional.com forward slash superstar paradox. That's all lowercase one word. Here's what we're going to cover today. You're going to learn about what the superstar paradox is and how overachievers can stop falling victim to their own success. She's going to share eight signs that show that you might be addicted to overachievement. are going to talk about what the holy grail of life really is, not what we sometimes fall in the trap of thinking it is, which can cause that stress and, and tension that can happen if we are addicted to overachievement. She shares three actions you can begin taking today to work through the problem of the superstar paradox and one mindset trap that will keep you stuck. There's so many gems in our conversation. She is a thinker, a sharer. She's energetic. She's passionate. I'm so glad that our paths have crossed. I always enjoy our discussions, our one-on-one discussions. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about her resume and background. She is a business coach and speaker, and she's focused on helping leaders create significant breakthroughs. So in relation to their business or profitability and at the same time focused on, and that's what a lot of our conversation today is about, is around revitalizing their energy and helping them define the meaning of their life. And you can tell as we talk that she's knowledgeable and she is passionate about this topic and it's why she's been recognized as a top coach um, by Goop Magazine this year. She works with organizations like JP Morgan, Christian Dior, Louis Vuitton and so many other names that you would know. Uh, She speaks five languages. That's pretty cool. She served in the Israeli army. We didn't talk about that, but I think that's interesting. She believes in service, and you'll hear that. She is being of service in her work. Um, I love during this conversation how authentic she is, how real she is about her own struggles, and it's just a real conversation. One of the things that she does in addition to coaching and and helping leaders build out their life in a way that's very fulfilling. She is a top-level crisis counselor. We talk a little bit about that. It's a, There's actually a crisis text line, and um, that is super interesting. She's accredited by numerous coaching organizations and, of course, has the certified, and I say of course because I already mentioned it. And uh I feel proud that she has certifications through our work together. She's also a certified professional motivators analyst and a certified professional disk analyst. And without further ado, let's go listen to and learn from Kieran Eldad. Again, quickly, show notes to everything we talk about is at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash superstar paradox.
2: All right, Kieran, we're so glad to have you here. You talk about and have written about being a recovering overachiever. Tell us about that. What's wrong with being an overachiever? And since you're a recovering overachiever, what difference has that made in your life?
3: First of all, I want to say it's such a pleasure to be on the podcast with my trainer. I admire you so much, and I'm really thankful for you taking the time to talk about this and the correlations that I've drawn between assessments and overachieving. To answer your question, I call myself a recovering overachiever because like most people in society, I used to consider overachieving the holy grail, the way you measure people's performance, the way you measure people's success, and a very attainable and a desirable way to live. Now that I do what I do, and of course, after my own personal transformation, I believe that overachieving comes with a lot of pitfalls. And uh, that's not to say that it's bad. That's not to say that it's always bad. But it is to say that today I live very, very differently, and I work with overachievers to help them see those pitfalls, find those blind spots, and possibly learn how to assuage them so that they can live better, easier, happier, more authentic lives.
2: So how did you realize that you needed to recover from being an overachiever?
3: I'm not going to use profanity on your show, Susie, but like many overachievers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then I'm just going to use one. Just see you. Because it's really important. It was a shit storm. And I always say to overachievers, if you don't intervene, if you don't make a decision to overcome this obsessive, compulsive, almost desire to work, 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 and chase, 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 and set your standards extraordinarily high, you will collapse. And it's either going to be a physical collapse or there will be a collapse of the systems. There will be a personal failure. There will be a career failure. There will be something that interferes. And in my case, it was all three. Uh, my personal life came to a screeching moment when I got divorced. Then I also suffered enormous financial loss as a result, of course, of the divorce. I quit my job because I was moving countries in order to go home after the divorce, and all of my stuff burned down in a fire, plus I couldn't find a job for five months. So if that's not an incredible storm, I don't know what is. And that was uh, the biggest blessing in my life. I came to understand that those systems were unmanageable and unsustainable and not making me happy in the first place. And it was the first chance that I'd had in years at that point to catch my breath and to ask myself, you know what, why are you doing this? Or what else might there be? And this was the beginning of everything, really.
2: And so the um, precursor to everything, uh, the shitstorm. my guess is you were working a ton of hours. You had these, you know, high extreme goals, probably having lots of success within and lots of recognition. How would you describe it? What yeah, happened? that's
3: the best way to describe it. It's the condition of having it all or at least looking like you have it all on Instagram. And, yeah. you know, overachievement According to the latest study that I saw, you know me, I'm like you. I like to read all studies (laughs) exhaustively. The most recent one I found was by the University of Scranton, where they defined overachievers as 8% of the population because what they were measuring for was results above and beyond the rest of society. Now, TTI also addresses what an overachiever is. And they, they say that, you know, mediocre performers still show up on time and follow through. That's not what an overachiever is. But star or overachievers go well, well beyond that and work in the white spaces in the in-between and are super proactive in going above and beyond, right? Mm-hmm. And what's very, very interesting about that was that is essentially how I was living. It wasn't just about the awards and the accolades. It was working 90 hours a week and uh, being at every single party and uh, making sure that everything always looks together, even though my personal marriage was a giant chance and so on and so forth. That's Mm -hmm. where overachieving becomes a scam, really. Mm
2: -hmm. And
3: when it's not a scam, massively exhausting. Does that answer Mm -hmm. the question?
2: Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So what led up to it and the symptoms are those. So, you know, there's many people who I like to work. So, you know, so it's like I like to work. But when it turns into an addiction or uh, that we need to recover is when we're just wearing ourselves out. We're still doing it, but we just don't. To me, it sounds like you're describing, like, the feeling space, like, and the authenticness. You don't feel good. You're doing all this, but you forgot you don't feel good anymore. You don't like it, but you continue to do it.
3: You know. It's funny. In my own research and my own work, I've found a very strong correlation between overachievement and perfectionism. It's one of the symptoms. It's not the overall paradox, if you will. But it's one of the hallmarks of overachievement is a form of perfectionism. Perfectionism is never a good thing. As many clinicians will say, including Paul Hewitt, who just wrote the book, Narcissism, it's really like having a bully in your head that's beating up a tiny child. What's happening is, You're massively overcompensating. You're overcompensating. You're overcompensating. And you're trying to numb. You're trying to numb shame. You're trying to numb an absent parent. You're trying to numb loss. You're trying to numb rejection. You're trying to numb the fear of failure so that you're never discovered and you never have to confront shame again. These are very, very deep-seated feelings, and that's essentially what's fueling overachievement. Now, how you can tell the difference to answer your question directly is this. Because a lot of people say to me, Karen, I love to compete. I thrive on being the best. I love to do. It's how they're (laughs) forming their identity, right? Like you want to hire them and you want to say, go get them. I do want you to go get them. I coach a lot of CEOs. I know how important this is to your real constitution. However, you can tell the difference very easily by learning to identify your intention. Intention is either to destroy the opponent and never be seen versus to thrive above and beyond my own personal standards. And the difference, the way you can know that difference isn't by asking yourself that question, because you're always going to answer in favor of yourself. It's by being real honest about what it feels like. If it feels crummy, if it feels like a pit in the stomach, if it feels like if I lose, everybody dies, you are definitely in the zone of perfectionism. If you find yourself beating yourself up for, I don't know, missing a meeting or for missing a workout or for falling short in some way or for wearing the wrong thing to a party, you are 100% in the realm of perfectionism because high standards, a person of high personal value for themselves doesn't beat themselves up, doesn't feel bad.
2: Yep, the bully in your head is not beating yourself up. (laughs) Yes, that is a great description of what an addiction to overachieving could look and feel like and it gets to how you feel now you've recovered and we're going to talk about recovery uh using your languaging but on the other side of that how you felt and uh, you know the lead up to that and then where you are today what's the
3: difference for you the difference is the feeling it's ease Mm -hmm. i know that this is such a funny thing to talk about with overachievers in particular because they almost don't buy it right if right. they're like, you're just lying, you're not that relaxed. But it really is a feeling of equanimity. It's a feeling of peace. I just gave a TED Talk last month, and it's had 40,000 views. And I'm really excited about that. But that comes with a lot of negative comments. Now to a person who is very sensitive to these kinds of things, that's very painful. I don't feel anything other than adoration for the people who took the time to comment on my little talk. I'm currently trying to lose a little bit of extra weight because I'm getting married in a few months. Before, this would be, Susie, catastrophic. I wouldn't show my face in public. I'm not kidding about that at all. I would beat (laughs) myself up for every extra calorie. I didn't sleep properly when I ate too much. Today, I'm like, all right, well, it's like he's not going to marry me. Everything's fine. You're going to look just fine. So you really reach a state where you're quite Jolly, really, most of the time. Not all of the time. Nobody's happy all the time. That's a clinical condition. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Most of the time. And that's the main difference.
2: Yeah. I like how you just said that jolly most of the time. You're jolly. (laughs) That's a good word. You don't hear jolly very often.
3: (laughs) Yes. You know, I want to share with you one of the, and I I know that I've shared this with you before because I remember when I was studying the assessment science, one of the most interesting things that I read was in the motivator workbook. And it was a white paper that was done on uh, superstars of the financial industry. And the most interesting finding that was included there for me that related to my clients was there was the only people who assessed very, very high social in their motivators are, in other words, were motivated by an altruistic desire to heal or help people rather than utilitarian economic motivators. Right. Bottom right. line orientation. We're right. earning $1 million plus and had been doing this for many years, meaning they were already understanding that that motivation doesn't last. That's another very good way of describing Karen 2.0 versus Karen 1.0. You kind of transcend that. You start to understand that that's ephemeral. It'll maybe work out, maybe not work out. You might as well not put your eggs in that basket because it's not reliable. Instead, giving of yourself and connecting with other people and enjoying the journey, probably a better bet.
2: Yeah, yeah. As opposed to having all of your identity tied to your role, how you're seen, how you look, you know, what your next achievement is, your identity is tied to knowing your own intrinsic value and knowing the intrinsic value of others and putting the attention there. I
3: That's couldn't different. have said it better. And don't you think it's interesting that you have to make a million dollars a year and, <laughs> and feel that stability for 20 years before you can allow yourself to feel that way?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And your contention is that that doesn't have to be that you can.
3: It really doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And we should stop being so shocked when we hear that Anthony Bourdain killed himself or Kate Spade killed herself, or Demi Moore felt miserable for many years. People are literally equating their net worth with their self-worth. And the sooner they do the work to reverse that, the sooner they will continue to enjoy net worth, I assure you. But they will live a much easier, much happier, much more fulfilling life.
2: So talk a little bit about, you said, do the work. Uh, I have some ideas of what the work has been for me in this process, because I have changed over the years. I like how you said the 1.0 and Karen 2.0. I think I'm at the 2.0 now too. Again, not perfect, but in a different place, you know, than I was earlier on. For you, what's been the, change how did you make the change? So you had everything kind of change and, and I'll use the word fall apart or go away. It's probably not the right words, but and you started anew, but did you do specific actions? Was it coaching? Was it counseling? Was it just having everything shift and making choices? What was it?
3: Well, the first thing that you're touching upon that I'd like to clarify for everybody out there who identifies an overachiever. And again, according to research, thirty two percent of everyone believes that they are which is very interesting as well in and of itself, that means that they're probably suffering from the same trappings, right? Uh, they believe in bottom line success. They lack vulnerability or embrace pretense and face saving tactics. They're lacking in empathy. They really are uh, not only striving for, but believe that success only comes in the forms of power and money and success. And they have very, very high benchmarks for themselves and for others. Those are the ways that you kind of sort of understand that you might be in the realm of the uncomfortable. Also, you'll see stuff coming up in your life, like your marriage isn't really working that well, and you find yourself a little hypercritical, and your job is you're constantly trying to measure up, and you have a very crippling fear of failure. That's how it turns up. But I got lucky because I was forced to see that I really needed to make a change. What do I mean by that? The shitstorm. I mean, that's the universe way of basically giving you a giant kick in the derriere and saying mm-hmm. you better get yourself into a different mode. Now, unfortunately, Susie, for most of the superstars that I coach, there is no shitstorm moment, not at that caliber, if you will. In many cases, there are, but not in all cases. And what they suffer from, therefore, is cognitive entrenchment, complacency, if you will. And I'm, nothing's broke, so why would I even fix it? I still have a lot of money is really the main argument that I hear all the time, or I am winning. <laughs> yes. Now, yes. even, even Stephen Schwartzman, the founder of Blackstone, who's like the patron saint of overachievers, just wrote a book, and one of his main ideas that was really good in this book was, he says that when things are really good economically, they don't want to change, and it's exactly then when they should be the most resilient, the most innovative, and the most flexible. And I couldn't agree more. If anyone out there is hearing anything that just a little bit resonates with them, take a leap and actually try to explore this a little bit further. You have no idea where it'll lead. And that will bypass cognitive entrenchment, which is the main obstacle to growth past this. Hmm. And once you do that, there are a couple of tactical steps that anyone can take. The first of them is to really begin to reassess what success means to you, to sit down and write out in all areas of your life, what could I improve? What could be a little better? And what's stopping me from making it really feel differently, not look differently, feel differently. And when you assess that, you're starting to see success through different parameters. When you start to see success through the eyes of, am I feeling joy? Am I feeling ease? Am I feeling happiness? Are my relationships deep and expansive and meaningful rather than do I have money? Do I have the C-level opportunity? And am I maximizing my time? Because, of course, superstars or overachievers are all about productivity. When you reframe (laughs) success in those terms, you end up in a really different universe. The second thing that everybody can start to do right now is to talk to yourself really, really nicely. Again, perfectionism is you bullying you. And by the way, it usually makes you rather unkind and unforgiving towards others. Yep. Instead of doing that, catch yourself next time you want to beat yourself up for missing a workout saying, it's okay. Nothing needs to happen this red hot second. I'll hop on the bike tomorrow. Everything is fine. No one is clinically obese. We can keep working on this. You're doing fine. You're doing great. And I know that sounds really cheesy. But when I started talking to myself this way and downloading really cheesy books like Heart Talk by Cleo Wade on Audible, so that a nice lady that I don't know could tell me how wonderful I am every time I was in the bathtub, things began to shift. Mm-hmm. I started to feel about myself differently. We lose this ability. And we think that 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 whip that we're whipping ourselves with it, is making us better, but it's really not. It's completely devaluing you, It's disconnecting you. From your self worth, and it's making you very invulnerable. And of course, the last thing that I recommend to get out of this and what helped me get out of this, because I did not have that self awareness. I'm honestly speaking with you right now, Susie. Like, you may call them blind spots for a reason. (laughs) I had nice professionals, great coaches sit with me and hold the space for me to help me to change.
2: Yeah sometimes what I find is I can see their goodness and they're not saying their goodness. And so hearing it from someone else helps them start to do number two <laughs> a little better, you know, reminding them of that. They are valuable outside of their work. Yeah. So for you having great professionals to work with coach, you counsel, you support you. That was a big piece for you.
3: It is. And you know, it's one of the great learnings when I became a coach too is, To see everyone that way. Everyone is a diamond in the rough. They just need to line up with what doesn't stress them versus the stressors. And they will live a much more comfortable life. Yes. I love me. There's no good. There's no bad.
2: (laughs) Yes. And the order in which you shared these had me thinking, you know, so really at the end of the day, if you cannot reorient around that feeling good, feeling at ease, paying attention to how you feel and that giving value to ease, happiness, good mood, relationships, if you have that out of balance, you probably won't do the other things too much, which is talk nicely to yourself, you know, because the minute you've lost that orientation, then you're just still bullying yourself. And then, you know, whatever you bully yourself, you probably, you know, do that to others. It gets transferred out. It's funny,
3: um, let's talk about why this is applicable or practical to people. There's a Marshall Goldsmith book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There.
2: I love it. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. Yep.
3: It's a great title. I think many people come to coaching just based on that basic realization. They understand that that which made them superstars has gotten them thus far, but they're stuck. They're stunted. Something's wrong. Their relationships are suffering. A classic example, and I had this discussion with you before, is a lot of my C-level profiles I can tell in advance what they're going to show up as. I know that they're going to be high individualistic, political, high utilitarian. I mean, obvious, that's seriously just the number one thing I see again and again and again in positions one and two. But also high D, high C, high dominance, high compliance in behavioral style profile. This is wonderful to, I don't know, elbow your way through the political ranks of hierarchical command and control company. But in the era of the millennial, And with a lot of people being, I don't know, people-oriented behavioral styles, like high steadiness or high influence, it would be very, very useful to develop the key tools of empathy, of expressing validation and appreciation and enthusiasm a little bit more, and so on and so forth. And once they start to just even see this, they can understand that their next level really lies in that which they were not paying attention to.
2: Mm, Yeah. So let's stop for a second and just explain utilitarian and individualistic. Do you want to do it? You're the maestro. We're maestros together. Just quickly, individualistic is a drive for power, it's a drive to be out front, it's a willingness to lead, it's the willingness to be the spokesperson. And in executive offices on executive teams, you often see if you're sitting in a conference room, everybody there as high individualistic political is a top motivator. Not always, but it's very often, as you're seeing with the profiles you're doing. And then it's tied to utilitarian and utilitarian economic is a drive for results. So it's a very practical utilitarian Practical and an objective, and it's a drive or an interest. It's not about capability, but it is. This fills my tank, so I like to get results and reduce waste, and then I want to be in charge of that. And so, what we say about utilitarian individualistic together is they are either the hero or the tyrant. Mm-hmm. And so, what determines that is what you're talking about.
3: Yeah, exactly right. It's it's where you're operating from. And again, if you can start operating from compassion and happiness. You are a hero.
2: Yes. Yes. So you talked a little bit earlier on about cognitive entrenchment. And I wanted to kind of go back to that because it ties into what you're talking about here. Talk a little bit more about cognitive entrenchment. It's when people say, I don't need to change. I'm miserable, but I'm fine. Is it, is it a mix like that where they're just kind of stuck? They're stuck where they are, but yep. they don't feel good. And you know How does that show up in coaching and with your clients?
3: Cognitive entrenchment shows up as two statements. Number one is, I know that already. And number two is, we've never done it that way before, so why would we do it this way now? Every yeah. single person out there who has ever been in a boardroom has confronted that yeah. either thought in their head or other people telling them. In the yeah. masterful book range, which is a new book that's out by David Epstein, He talks about the two styles of developing superstardom. The first is the Tiger Woods model. Learn exactly the same things from the time you're three years old and achieve global dominance. The second is the Roger Federer model. Play every kind of game until you figure out which one you like the best and then play that one. Obviously, Federer is the leading example and the lasting example, the one with the least personal ramifications or the most stable life example thus far from what we know about him. And he talks about this also in the case of heart surgeons. Uh, heart surgeons are also trained very, very specifically, or have been traditionally trained very specifically to the point where once they're 60, nobody can teach them anything new. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing today now is approaching it the more Roger Federer way. Medical schools like Johns Hopkins are now teaching them, in addition to science, music and actually leadership skills and philosophy so that they can make connections more readily, so they can stay more fluid, more open-minded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting things about the statement, I know that already, or "It's I, I already know how to do this and this is how it's been done, so you can't introduce anything new, is it really does produce stagnation. Mm-hmm. And it's the primary form of bias that I see as the coach, but So much so that I even gave a TED talk about it. The talk is actually called You Don't Know What You Don't Know. And the easiest way to describe this is, as Voltaire once said, (laughs) doubt is a frightening way to live, but certainty is ridiculous. I love that. Yes. I love that sentence. I'm paraphrasing in this particular case, but that's exactly what he meant by that. To know everything with certainty, to believe that you know everything, to believe that you can't still learn something around here is the surest way to experience extraordinary anxiety and also to mess up, because things are always changing.
2: Yeah, yes, yes, yes. You know, in the uh, trimetrics assessment, we're measuring acumen, which is how people think and make decisions, there's a part is about sense of self and you can see if someone has a has a bias you can actually see the result and basically what you'll see if they have a bias towards thinking i've arrived i've already discovered it all i know who i am and you can't tell me anything what we see what i see and it's anecdotal but i've seen it and we do talk about it uh, as we're helping people debrief those parts. But anytime you have somebody who has that, I know who I am and, you know, I don't want to learn anymore. I, you know, I'm already wonderful. <laughs> Basically, cognitive entrenchment, what you're talking about, when they sincerely have it, they are completely uncoachable. Anything you tell them, it, rules off anything you try to share there's no it's such a different uh, conversation so anytime I see it I'm like okay this is going to be an interesting conversation it tends to play out that way so it's exactly what you're talking about it's probably why it caught
3: my attention Um, I've been thinking about that a lot like a lot of people ask me so who's uncoachable that's uncoachable yeah that's uncoachable If, if you don't think that we can help you with anything then good luck with everything. By the way, that is the person who most likely needs the most help. They're either yeah. an antisocial personality type, that's one in a hundred, that's not a small number of people, uh, that's yeah. sociopaths and so on and so forth. And I know that that sounds horrifying, but they usually get worse with treatment <laughs> because they learn the language and they can start mimicking uh, and appearing to heal when they're not. But also the people who are cognitively entrenched and that emotional, that mental arrogance is a real telltale sign of real distress Mm. underneath. They are suffering. They truly don't know how to ask for help. And they're so caught up in the numbing, in the material cover-up of that shame that they won't let anybody near them. But in that case, I I like to take my rabbi's advice. My rabbi once said, if an old lady doesn't want to get across the street, you don't get to drag her. So leave them alone. It's okay. They'll find somebody when they
2: want to. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I never want to try to give anybody something that they're not asking for um, because I don't believe that I have all the answers. I believe there's a lot of people who have answers. so somebody else could be their answer when they're ready, you know. So it is interesting on the assessments to see it. And if if you have the right person in this right situation, I have been able to, to before point it out where they can visibly see it on the assessment. So, you know, their manager's telling them this, they're about to lose their job, you're having a conversation with them, and you're, you know, now laying it out, and they're still not receptive. And and at that point, I can take them to that part of the assessment. Say, I'm going to show you visibly when you answer the questions through this science what it showed, you know. and And then you mirror it with maybe they have the high dominance, you know, assertive style and you know, and the the motivators that we talked about. It's like, okay, that's creating a, a storm for you. you yeah. Know?
3: And and once they do hit it, they'll they'll come and see it. But whoever is open to this is gonna be astounded and really profoundly impacted just by the what they find out in the assessments. The assessments have helped me to have very deep conversations very quickly in coaching because you can explore blind spots that perhaps other people haven't considered. I'll give you a great example. One of the first things that you said to me was high eye, high influence, personality, behavioral style, very friendly, very talkative, very warm, people person. However, can also come across as self promoting and salesy, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's funny because I remember taking that and really thinking about always looking at my audience, asking myself whether they are looking for something else from me, for a more factual, more reflective point of view, for slowing down, for speaking less. That was invaluable to me. And that's just one tiny insight.
2: Yes, I know. Every time I read my assessment and go through it, I learn something else about myself, or some awareness, you know. So it's, you know, to the point of what you just said, it's not like we don't want those leaders who are individualistic, political in their interests and the motivators, the utilitarian to not have that, but we want them to know You know, here's where it's serving you and here's where you could have some blind spots. And right now, based on what you're telling me, this might be your place. You know, we haven't realized the other side of that or to manage that or not let that rule you so much. We have this anxiety, you know. So I I would imagine that some of the people that come to you are dealing with anxiety. Do you have conversations about that?
3: Yes. We know statistically that C-level executives and entrepreneurs are suffering from mental disorders at a rate of twice as much as the general society. So 48% of C-level executives and entrepreneurs are experiencing some form of anxiety and depression. That's according to Michael Freeman's last study for Stanford, very, very famous studies, (laughs) in fact. Did
2: you say 48%? um, 48%, yes. will experience
3: some form. Now, I have to tell you that this is definitely reflective of what I see in counseling. And in fact, when they're not suffering from anxiety or depression, they kind of consider themselves above. And they see that as a notch too, which is very funny. But in some cases, yes, you do see panic attacks, recurring panic attacks. That's certainly uh, something that I see a lot. Any form of anxiety, including insomnia. And uh, in some cases, depression, in which case I'm, of course, always referring to clinical treatment.
2: Right, right. So the best best coping mechanisms, if someone's listening and they're hearing themselves being described in some of these things, you know, lacking in empathy, maybe higher and higher benchmarks, you know, personal relationships are in challenge. You gave a couple of things that we could begin doing. When you're coaching them you know, how long does it take or is there an average when you're coaching someone that's in this situation where, and they are agreeable and open to, I want to, I want to change things a bit. Does it require that they change their whole life or are most people just able to change how they think and feel inside and it makes a big difference and just talk a little bit about that and what the journey's like. If someone says, I to make this journey.
3: Yeah. The journey is on average four months, four months is for my foundation program. And yes, it is. It's change your mind, change your life. You don't need to get divorced, close your company, and uh, start wearing Birkenstocks all day. I'm not asking anybody (laughs) to make profound gifts. And I want everyone out there to know that I still wear Prada on a regular basis. None of this has to change. What does change is the way you look at things. And if you look at things differently, as Wayne Dyer once said, the things you look at begin to change. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what we're aiming for. We're aiming to rationally help you to use that prodigious focus that you have and to to focus it just in the direction that won't stress you out, that will produce the most ease, that will produce the most win-win, that will produce the brightest and uh, least resistant filled choices in life. Mm, Rather than that. swimming upstream in the hopes that someday someone will erect a statue in your honor. No one will erect a statue in your honor. You might as well have a nice Ride.
2: Yes, yes, yes. So many things come to mind. Joy is in the journey. Everybody knows that, but it it knows the verbiage. But you know, how many of us are living it? You
3: know? But that's kind of the thing about everything that's discussed ever in anything that's resembling kind of personal development forum. Every time I give a talk for a company, I always say, every single idea you're about to hear here, you have heard 7,000 times in your life. And I challenge you, instead of glazing your eyes to ask yourself instead, what can I still learn here? Am I going to hear this in a different way that will actually resonate with me? And am I actually living this way? Because it's just like the principles of time management. They're very, very basic. But most people are not living that way. Most people are spending two hours of their day on social and actually flipping through a Tinder profile and checking their (laughs) phones 150 times a day for other crap. Well, you know, if you were aware of that, and you really did something about it, you would not have a shortage of time. It really is that simple. So the mm-hmm. question is take this and decide to do something with it because I just read a book that really moved me. I read a lot like you. Yes. Um, yes. It's a new book by Tom Rath. He's the same guy who wrote Tre- Finders 2.0. Oh, yeah. He stuff. wrote uh, How
2: Full Is Your Bucket, too, or something like that that I've always yeah. loved. Love that book. Super it's so simple guys. and it's so powerful. Well, this is a new book.
3: The new one is about finding your passion in life, and he reveals in it that when he was in his teens, he was diagnosed with a very rare condition that would develop many tumors in his body and cancers, and he would probably have very little to live. He has somehow, by some miracle, managed to live 25 years longer and to produce some books that have changed and transformed millions of lives. And he says in it a sentence that really strikes me as the reason why everybody should do the work, and it's this. He says, I have come to believe that it is no one's best self interest to live as if they had forever. Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: And that is what many of us do. Wow.
3: Yeah, it's my favorite.
2: Love that. I'm going to get that book just because uh, he's a great writer. He does it simplistically. And I did not, I mean, he says things in a very clear, simplistic, powerful way. And I did not know that he had an illness. That's interesting.
3: Isn't it? Yeah. It's much to make about all your life. And you know, the funny thing is I sort of went through that a little bit because I was 35 when I got divorced. And I know that that's relatively young, but that's kind of a moment where you go, gosh, I could literally easily spend another 40 years just doing this. And it's nowhere near satisfying. Mm. And why would I continue to do it just because it's a good paycheck and it looks great on Instagram? Yeah. And in that sense, got really, really lucky.
2: Yes. Yes because you're definitely passionate about what you do and very effective at doing it, which is awesome. Thank you. And we're going to share your Ted talk, which I completely enjoyed and find very valuable. So we'll share that in the show notes too. Yeah, it made me think about, I heard, I'm always listening to podcasts too, and uh, I think Tim Ferriss might have interviewed Jim Collins. I'll try to find the podcast. But anyway, Jim Collins wrote uh, Good to Great and a bunch of other books, great researcher. But one of the things that he does is he has an Excel spreadsheet, and at the end of every day, he rates the day. He says it's a, a, a plus two day, anywhere from a plus two day to a minus two day. And then he tracks what it was that happened that made him. You know, rate it plus two, plus one, you know, zero, one, minus one, minus two, and I thought, wow, that's really an effective way to rate it. And the other day, I had a plus two day, you know, and I thought, what is it that to happened today? What, what, you know, what did to examine it? You know, so it seems like this could be a tool, you know, how to, and and it would help. It helps you focus on, uh, you know, feeling. How do I feel today? It was plus two day because I felt this way.
3: Yeah, I completely, I love that. That's kind of like the idea that I had for just ranking your, how is every department of your life going and it doesn't produce happiness or ease. So I I don't know that I would be looking for plus two or minus two in terms of actions or things that transpired, but I would probably be looking for happiness degree. Did I feel ease? Did I feel calm? Was I anxious? Did I sleep properly? Uh, Did I meditate? Did I take good care of myself or was I running against the wind? It's yeah. kind of like the, the way I've heard couple therapists talk about couples. Many of them have said, and I even read this in the New York Times, that they're looking for a five to one ratio, five positive interactions in the couple for one negative interaction. Yep. So, of course, in, <laughs> in difficult uh, relationships, that ratio is in the inverse. And so I sort of think about life that way, too. is mm. Are five sixths of your day good Versus the one that was kind of like, I don't know, I got stuck in traffic or somebody was rude to me. If you're there, you're doing okay. You're close to equanimity.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I knew about that ratio, but I never thought about applying it to just your day. I like that. Yeah, that's powerful. So what else about superstar paradox? You have some things that you share in regard to focus areas. in your You have a little summary sheet. Uh, five key lessons. Out of those key lessons, is there one that particularly stands out that you think is a great starting point? What would you say?
3: Well, there is one that I'd like to share, and it helps me to climb out of my own overachieving ways. Again, because self-awareness is hard for us, it involves suffering. It involves really thinking about ourselves and facing our emotions. This is not easy for anyone, in my experience. Most of us spend a lot of time avoiding it, actually. That's what alcohol all about. Yes. Um, but one of the most interesting things that I learned uh, in the process was before you can stop to think about yourself, one of the easiest ways to gain perspective is to serve others. Remember, the Dalai Lama is a superstar, and Mother Teresa was a superstar, too. And they lived their whole life devoting them to helping other people. Now, you don't need to be called to bring peace on Earth in order to serve other people. In my personal journey, the first thing I did was not turn into a coach, but I volunteered on a suicide hotline. We are today the biggest suicide hotline in the country and actually on the globe. It's called Crisis Text Line, where I just learned to listen to other people and to help other people. And that immediately got me out of my own head, out of the smallness and the pettiness with which I was living my life, and to slow down and have a lot of empathy for myself, through that perspective for others. Mm. Anyone out there can do that in lots of different ways. And remember, high individualistic or high utilitarian, the two motivators that Susie described earlier today, would probably mean that you might not spend an enormous amount of time on suicide hotlines, but you could give, you could contribute, you could become involved in an organization that has a great network that is beneficial and of interest to you. I promise you, going out and serving, even if it's just picking up the dry cleaning for your spouse without being asked, doing someone a favor without being asked, connecting two people so that one of them can find a job or a benefit, that is so gratifying and so elevating of the self-worth that it really does begin to give everything that you're doing a lot more meaning.
2: You know, and you touched on something with the individualistic political the beauty is they're charismatic and they're willing to lead and they're willing to put in the work and there's so many strengths in all of the different interests you know and in that one, there's so many strengths, but the biggest blind spot is they tend to make it about themselves, and I have individualistic in my Profile, you know, it's up there. So, you know, I'm aware. It's like, okay, I don't want to make it about myself. And I've talked to other executives at times when they've been struggling about something and kind of pointed that out in their assessment. And I had, I remember, I had a, a CEO come back to me and said, you know, we talked about that. And I said, oh, that's not me. I, and he said, you know, such and such happened, and I realized, yep, I guess I do do that sometimes, or you know, more oh, than gosh. others, you
3: know. It's so true. And, and that's such a beautiful thing to share and to understand that you've maybe been able to to change. The individualistic political is up against a worldview that is harsh. is up against an I must survive and no one will take care of me kind of mindset. Mm. And that is the opposite. And that's why they're usually correlated in the inverse. That's the opposite of a high social, a high altruistic motivated human being. Again, I understand that that's maybe the world view that we're working with. A lot of Machiavellians out there, a lot of Ayn Rand fans. Not a problem. Instead, just work within your own dedicated confines. Make your choices better so that you can get clearer about serving and making your life meaningful for you. Call it enlightened self-interest. You'll feel better.
2: Yeah. And that's the whole idea of knowing you. Okay, here's your strength. And, oh, guess what? This is a, could be a blind spot for you. You know, so work on that's it. That's exactly right. And it doesn't own you. You know, it's just an interest. But knowing where that interest serves you and knowing where it's not. And if it's causing you to be this addicted, addicted to overachievement and having a lot of pain in your heart and, you know, distance from others, then, you know, here's some solutions. That's great. Yeah.
3: That's yeah. exactly right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> what else about key lessons do you want to share for overachievers in regard to maybe the hardest one for people to grasp or anything else before we jump into talking more about a little bit more about you and your wake up eager life?
3: I think there's a lot to talk about here, but the only other thing that I can share is <laughs> you can never hit the mark when you're pointed in the opposite direction.
2: Yeah, if you're not I like that on lesson. Yeah,
3: yeah. if you're not pointed at it, if you're not aiming for happiness, you're not going to get happiness. An individualist political who believes possibly that I am the only one who has my own back will probably manifest that in their lifetime. Again, it's a question of focus. If that's how you see the world, that's what you will perpetually see. And if you're constantly going after power and status, you will get power status. You'll get money you might do so at the cost of happiness because you're not focused pointedly at happiness. And it makes a lot of sense that you'd be pointed in the opposite direction, in the utilitarian practical direction. Because, well, first of all, they don't teach you happiness in business school, but also because happiness doesn't seem to be measurable, doesn't seem to be a tangible thing. But as we grow older, it becomes much, much more tangible, especially when it's absent, because it becomes a huge cost, a cost that we can all feel. In our life satisfaction costs that we pay constantly when we suffer the minor humiliations that keep us stunted and uh well it's definitely worth your while to start going right at happy yeah and
2: in your notes i actually highlighted it and then wrote it out and you say in your verbiage being satisfied with life overall should be the holy grail
3: yes and again that's that's one of those things that sometimes you say to a sea level that I I enjoy coaching so much and they I I've literally heard them look at me and say you're lying, you're making it up, nobody lives in that state. And I have to tell you, you could tie me up to a lie detector test. It is the truth and many of us are living this way and it, you would love it if you saw how fantastic it was. You would run at happy.
2: Mm, yeah. And it's something that happens, you know, just like how they got, how we can get away from, you know, our relationships or our happiness at work, you know, little by little by little. I think going back to it sometimes doesn't happen in all one fell swoop. It's something over time, you know, that you change based on a little action here, another action here. And then before you know it, it adds up to a lot of action or change in belief. Yeah.
3: Micro steps, really, just like any goal. Yeah. Just like any goal. It's every time you aim for the moon, you are going to overshoot. This is why people miss most of their resolutions. But if instead you're reasonable with yourself and you just start taking small actions, like going after your passions in this lifetime. You want to go to a hip hop class? Go to a hip hop class, for example, other than think that people will judge you for going to a hip hop class. And every time you take a little decision from that authentic place and honor it, you are getting closer and closer to happy.
2: Mm, love it. Love it. Perfect. So I want to learn more about you because I think that'll also share um, for others who are, one, they'll better understand you and working with you as a coach and as a person, and then also your journey of, you know, moving from being an overachiever to this now helping other people not suffer from this superstar paradox. So let's learn more about you, Karen, and talk about who's influenced you most in your life and in your career. And what did they do? What did they say? Or what happened that made them that person?
3: Well, I think that a couple of people have influenced me very much. And fortunately, I have met neither of them, especially since one of them is a hero of fiction. I talk a lot about Madonna. As a small child, I watched Madonna do the impossible and the unthinkable and to do it with panache and bravado and fun and like she was having the time of her life and i just admired the heck out of her i think that formed an enormous portion of my psyche and i think today i am an executive coach but i'm also a motivational speaker and performance is certainly affected by that Mm. and for the other portion i really am a huge fraser fan an unusually kooky obsessive fraser fan the sitcom from the 90s which i'm thrilled to hear is coming back in 2020. It is? As, yeah, it's part of the weird sitcom revival that we're living through right now. I guess it's because people really want to go back to the past and not deal with what's happening right now. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: I'm a huge Fraser fan, and I love Fraser not only for his cerebral approach and authentic commitment to human potential, the love of people that he showed in his work, but also just his personal integrity and decency. I love seeing a character like that and good writing on television, I've certainly, that had a profound effect on on my life and on the way I see my career. In terms of my personal trajectory, I was like every other overachiever. I was the person who lived a quote-unquote perfect life, winning many awards, wearing fantastic outfits to a C-level job at a billion-dollar company, in Zurich, of all places, another C-level hub, married to a tall man, which Susie, as you know, is the holy grail of husbands, (laughs) and yeah I I basically I went to the right schools I checked every single box off and uh, I don't think I ate carbs since 1995 so there were a lot of things that I was doing check mark check mark check mark check mark and then one day I woke up at 35 I remember it like it was yesterday nothing happened suddenly of course but this was my moment and I was sleeping in the library of this grand home that I lived in I'd been sleeping in the library for months uh, I, I was in a loveless marriage that only lasted two years, and I can't believe it lasted that long. It was just horrifying and abusive, and I was just humiliated time and time again. And there I was, sleeping in the library of this grand house with my cats by myself, and thinking, how did I get here? And it's not that my career wasn't satisfying. It was a very fine career. It's just that I never thought that this was what I really wanted to do. It was just profitable, and I was good at it. I may as well just do it. And instead of thinking, what do you really love? What do you really want to do? What's maximizing your potential and your unique gift? And this is where the collapse began from the divorce to the fire, to the losing the job and, and going through this very long self-exploration. After myself going through 26 coaching programs, I realized that the reason it was taking me so long was because No one had taken the time to really design a coaching program for overachievers, meaning people who intellectually understand things very, very quickly, much slower to feel.
1: And I wanted to
3: create that manipulation of feeling in a program Uh designed for overachievers. I also knew that they, like me, would probably move. It's just like salespeople who are more effective with people who are the same behavioral style as they are. Right. Well, coaches are the same way. When an overachiever recognizes another person with some of the hallmarks that they recognize in their own life, they're more likely to take them seriously, want to work with them, et cetera. So I created Live With Enthusiasm three years ago this week. Oh, my
2: goodness. goodness.
3: I know. It has been the, I'm very happy the, the, to
2: celebrate that with you today. Thank you. Thank <laughs> That's you. amazing. It's, huge,
3: it's, it's an enormous joy. It's been the resounding success of my life and, above all, the biggest joy I've mm. ever experienced.
2: Yeah! Wow, that's awesome.
3: Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I love the anniversary.
2: Yes, <laughs> happy anniversary to you and to your program and this. You know, I love what you said. Intellectually, it can be understood, but how do you actually feel the change? And that's what your program is related to. It sounds like I'm focused on.
3: Yeah, if you stay in the intellectual, you're going to stay in the area that says if they ain't broke, don't fix it.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's interesting, Hartman's work always talks about that in regard to the acumen part of the assessment, which is always about systemic is the thinking and extrinsic is the doing, but the intrinsic is the feeling, and the feeling, piece is the power. And he always said, if you can learn to value that feeling over the other, you want the other because they all are important to how we think and make decisions, but if you can grow the intrinsic, then, you know, you'll grow uh, beauty in your life and meaning in your life and all the things you're saying, you know, and he was saying that back in the 60s and 70s. So that's very cool, plus many We just
3: need to get to a place where people really understand that that's what's missing and that they need to value that. And luckily, we have a a mental health epidemic at the moment. Social media has caused, I think, not only mental health issues, but in particular isolation and loneliness to be the epidemic of this century. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. many people will have to go back to understanding that feelings are not nonsense, they're not not measurable, and they're not useless. They're not for sissies. Feelings are actually what fuel real, measurable success.
2: Yeah. Connection before all the other, you know, connecting with each other, uh, connecting within. So when you think about books and education and training that have been instrumental to you and somebody's listening today and they're saying, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready to do any coaching, but boy, I sure would like to read a few things that kind of help me understand what, what Karen's talking about. What would you say? you have anything specific you'd recommend? What's that?
3: Well, first, I mean, if you are interested, if you're an HR professional out there and, or a coach, you should definitely get in touch with Susie for the universal language of DISC and for motivators, just as very basics to start to understand things a little bit differently. It's a fascinating universe. And I think anybody would benefit enormously. It'll add an enormous rich dimension to your work and will help you to actually become more human, not more stereotyping or or mechanical, really much more human in your appreciation of other people and in your work with other people. But in personal life, I believe that the book that has had the most profound effect on me in the last 10 years is *Solve for Happy by Mo Gaudat. Mo Gaudat is or was the COO of Google, is a mathematician and an engineer, and a very, very, very rich man who writes the story of how he realized how to live a rich, profound life that has nothing to do with losing your soul and everything to do with living happy mm. after the loss of his son. Oh. It's a powerful, beautiful story. And one of the most wonderful lines in the book was You can plan for the future of yourself and the future of your children. I had absolutely everything arranged, but life doesn't play that way. And if you start oh. to recognize that and really Aim for as much powerful presence as you can in this lifetime. You will get it. It's a breathtaking book. I recommend it to absolutely anyone who's looking for meaning right now, in the beginning of the journey right now.
2: What was the title of the book again?
3: Solve for Happy. Solve? S O L V Yeah, like an algebraic equation. Solve. Oh, for that's happy. why and I it missed it because
2: I was like, did she say solve Solve of Happy.
3: Solve for happy, and one of the things I like about this a lot, and that a lot of overachievers like about this, is number one, it's written by a scientist, so they don't receive this as woo-woo nonsense. Number two, it's written by an extremely successful person, so again, you're much more likely to receive this not as with the natural skepticism, uh, and this is nonsense, and this doesn't apply to me, but more with you know what, this might be something valuable.
2: Yeah, this is somebody I can listen to and has, has credibility with me. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It's all for happy. That's wonderful. Anything else you'd like to add or that would be your favorite? Anything else?
3: The only thing I'd say to my former self and to anybody who is an overachiever is be easy on yourself. You are doing much better than you think.
2: Yes. And when you think of the word successful,
3: who comes to mind? The two dollies. Dolly Parton and Dalai Lama? (laughs) I like that. Say more. I'll tell you why. They both embody, first of all, Dolly Parton has possibly the most delightful giggle that ever was in the world. And he, the Dalai Lama, has the most adorable laugh. If you watch any interview with both of them, they're just constantly giggling. They're adorable. But in addition to the adorableness, they also clearly possess equanimity. People who have undergone enormous injustice in life and really heinous life events and have maintained their calm, their kindness, and their servile attitude. That non-divisive, objective, sweet nature. I am here to cause no harm. It's really a lovely thing to see. That that to me is real success. And that's why, by the way, everybody overall, like even people who don't know what the Dalai Lama does, and even people who are Republicans or Democrats, we all love Dolly, and we all love the Dalai Lama.
2: Yes, exactly right. That is so awesome. Yes, love that. Yes, (laughs) never put those two together, but of course you would. You're so original. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That is beautiful. So let's talk about waking up eager. That is my mission for myself and uh, for the work that I do. It's about wishing that and wanting that and trying to create that and focusing on that what are the things that you do that help you create more wake up eager days and we can think of them in the three categories of mind body and spirit what's kind of happening for you these days that are really is really helping you
3: well you know i've heard many many of your podcast episodes as you know and Many of your guests are prodigiously exciting people who talk immediately about working out the first thing in the morning and eating a certain way and so on and so forth. I will bore absolutely no one out there with that. And (laughs) for me, (laughs) waking up eager boils down to two things. Love what you do and love who you're with. If you wake up next to somebody that is really filling your heart with joy and it's just a delight to wake up with, like Ryan, the man I'm marrying, yeah, you wake up, knowing that you're going to do something that you would do, even if nobody paid you, you are definitely bouncing out of bed, no matter what.
2: Yep. Put your feet on the floor, get up and say, Oh, I'm excited about the day I'm going to have today. There's a lot that goes into that, but it's, it's a choosing all along the way. And then love who you're with. Yeah. I read somewhere a long time ago, you know, the 80% of your, I don't remember if this is right or not, but it was on some a motivational poster or whatever, but it really stuck with me. 80% of your happiness or misery is related to who you marry.
3: You know, it's such a funny thing that you mentioned. I have a program called Dates with Enthusiasm. And oh, really? Reason, Do you? I know. For some weird reason, it's the one, and I'm an executive coach. I literally, in private coaching, only see careers. It has been a bestseller <laughs> for me online, by far the biggest bestseller. And one of the most interesting things that I've noticed is that it's true Within four sessions, five sessions, people want to talk about their marriage and their love life. There's no getting around it. Our happiness starts and ends at home. And if things are miserable at home, you can cover it up as much as you want by being a workaholic and trying to find things elsewhere. But it's not going to fix itself. This is Mm -hmm. very, very true. Warren Buffett has said that of the five top people around you whose character you will emulate, because, of course, we are the sum of the top five people around us, the number one decision of who to surround yourself with is your spouse. And he also said and many, many occasions <clears throat> that when you marry rich, is just plain stupid. It's really, really dumb when you don't have money, and it's extraordinarily dumb when you do have money. And that's mostly because so many people are, he probably observed keenly, as have I, are marrying for status they're marrying for power they're marrying for money and they're marrying for status and this always backfires because one day you're going to have to wake up with them and if it's not genuine love it's not going to make it past two years
2: yep that is right date with enthusiasm i love that so that's a program (laughs) that you have (laughs) i love it it makes so much sense yes yes I know my husband's made a huge difference in my life, you know, just having that partnership. And then I know know what it's like to not have that because I have also had the opposite. So I feel it myself, too.
3: Same here, Um, but from where you're making your choices. Before, as I mentioned, I chose a tall man. Well, and a lot of other hallmarks that I thought I should, quote, unquote, marry in order to line up with society. And when I gave that up, because I started to realize that all those systems were failing me, I'm now marrying somebody who really has my heart. Absolutely no other reason than he's delightful to be around. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yep. Enjoy each other.
3: So what
2: advice would you give your 25-year-old self?
3: Be easy on yourself. You're doing much better than you think.
2: Yes. Yes. Good. I think that's worth repeating.
3: (laughs) I say that on the suicide hotline every time I end a conversation. Be easy on yourself. We are so much harder on ourselves than we should be.
2: Yeah. So, when you do the hotline, do you do that on a regular basis still, or are you still involved with yes. that?
3: Yeah, once a week from the pleasure of my own house. It's a text line, so we can have multiple conversations at the same time. Nancy uh, Lublin, the founder, was also the founder of Dress for Success and is a true hero.
2: Oh, nice.
3: And yeah. it's an amazing thing that we can do something on that scale with 5,000 counselors around the country who are all volunteers every week for people. Oh, wow.
2: Wonderful. What is the hotline? Like, it's the crisis listens, text
3: line. And yeah, crisis is, text line is available 24-7. All you have to do is text
2: 748-748. 748-748. And that is a the text line. Yeah. And then they link you up to a counselor.
3: That's right. Okay. Good. Sorry, 741-741. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 741. <laughs> text 741-741. I don't know why I was thinking about the number 8. That's probably because it's my favorite number. It's a good number. <laughs> it's a good
2: number. Seven four one seven four one. And then what yeah. happens is somebody will text right back. And,
3: and We'll text right back, yeah. Okay.
2: Okay, great. If you could have a billboard anywhere, what would it be? Where would it be? What would it say?
3: I would like to have a large billboard in Miami Beach that said, Welcome to Miami. Karen lives here. Oh, okay. Say more. One of my big dreams, one of my big dreams to return to the great and happy city of Miami, where I've had the fortune of uh, having a second home, but I just love that lifestyle so much. And, you know, my brand is called Live With Enthusiasm, but I always thought that there was something about Miami that embodies that. Nobody really does much work. It's so happy. It's filled with water. It's breathtakingly beautiful. And I think that that tongue-in-cheek nod to the citizens of Miami might make me very happy.
2: Ah, uh, yes. Very colorful. When I think of Miami, I think colorful and happy. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, like Mrs. Maisel.
2: <laughs> I love that show. Have you been watching that, that, that?
3: Did you yes, watch the, I love that show.
2: The third season is out. Is that the yeah. best? I just it's watched. The uh, binge-watched it this past weekend. <laughs> I, it's like, Isn't oh, it I want wonderful? more episodes.
3: And actually, to that point, that that's why that billboard came to mind, because two of the episodes take place in Miami. And I thought, yeah, that's color. That's happy. That's, I wish it said Karen lives here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love that. I love that. And so if you're listening, uh, The Marvelous Miss Mazel, it's on Prime Video, and she's a comic in the 60s. And it's that journey of her and her family and her kids. And it's hilarious and interesting and just a fun, fun, happy show to watch.
3: But it's also a wonderful show that illustrates the superstar paradox, the overachiever paradox in yes. itself. In the first season, she is a perfect housewife with perfect oh, yeah. measurements.
2: She makes a perfect the perfect life.
3: brisket. She makes the perfect brisket. She's married <laughs> to the perfect guy. And, yeah. of course, it all comes crashing down. He's having an affair with his secretary. Her yep. brisket is not that well received. And the truth is, she's always really just wanted to be a comedian, which at the time was a shameful thing to want to do. And that transition, that breaking up with all of her societal codes and with her family to do what she really, truly wants to do and discover who she really is, is essentially the journey.
2: Yes, it is. That is beautiful. Yes. Great show. It's a great show. So last bit of advice or wisdom about the superstar paradox? Maybe it's something you want to restate or a point you'd really like to drive home, but what would you say?
3: I would like to say that it is my hope that we start to move away as a culture from the adulation of overwork, of hustle, and of doing too much. It has made us lose our humanity. We've become human doings and not human beings. And it's it's not shameful to ask for help when you've been doing this for a really long time and you're just done with it. I hope that anyone out there who has had these pangs and has felt that they're paying a price for living this way decides to live differently because it is available. There is another way, and it's a very, very nice way. I yes. hope that at least that message resonates, that, that overcommitment to work is is not paying off for any of us.
2: Yes, that's awesome best way to reach you karen
3: the best way to reach me is through my website kareneldad.com and karen is spelled with two e's and uh, you can do lots of things through that website you can book a free consultation with me you can check out the coached podcast which is my call-in show where i take people's questions you can read my last op-eds and anything like that so go ahead and enjoy
2: awesome And I saw that your um, TED Talk is on there, too, on the homepage, but we'll also have it on our show notes. But uh, it is a joy to know you. It's a joy to hear and learn from you. It's a joy to see your passion and your clarity about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and the difference it'll make. And just real glad that you're out in the world doing what you're doing and that we're connected. It's been a blessing.
3: Thank you, Susie. I feel exactly the same way. I can't tell you what the accreditations have done. For me personally and intellectually and how excited and eager I am to learn more it's really an honor to know you you are the best of the best
2: oh thank you and I love that you just used the eager word <laughs> we like that all right thank word. you so much
0: so in Kieran's description of eight indications that you're an overachiever who might be out of balance did you see yourself or did you see someone you love if so, keep in mind the three actions she shared, which is to reassess what success means to you. And those are, that's a deep question that you'll want to spend time with. And you might spend some time journaling. You might spend some time with your coach or counselor, or with friends. You know, what is success to you really? And can you redefine it? based on the whole of you, not just the systemic or extrinsic part of you, which is the doing and the, you know, what is the black and white dollar figures, all of that matters. But what about the meaning? How do you want to feel? And in the Hartman language, if you listen to this podcast, you know, we talk about axiology and part of trimetrics that measures you know, how we become fully self-actualized. Hartman taught us that there are three dimensions, intrinsic, extrinsic, and systemic. And so Kieran is right on when she says, uh, you're out of balance if you're not thinking about the feeling part, which is the intrinsic. And um, so she is really being the guide to help you build out that piece of your life while still valuing the extrinsic, the doing, and the systemic, you know, the, the dollar figures that you rack up and the goals that you meet. So that is really powerful. So start reassessing what success means to you in a more balanced way. I love how often she referenced, you know, just talk nicely to yourself. I love that. So today I'm going to challenge you to do that. Talk nicely to yourself. So if you make a mistake or you don't meet a goal or something bad happens, notice your self-talk and see, see if you can start changing that. And then last but not least, tap into the resources of people like Kieran and others to help you make the shifts you want to make so that you can create more balance and meaning in your life. Wanted to share the quote. It really stood out to me, and I got excited about it when she shared it. And she did a good ad lib on it, but it's by Voltaire, and it says, Doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. And so I wanted to reshare that because if you're thinking today, you know, there's nothing for me to learn, I've arrived, or maybe you're not thinking you arrived, but you think, you know, I don't need to grow in these additional ways, everything's just fine. Be open to the idea that there might be more. You know, you don't know what you don't know, which is such a statement that, you know, I don't know that I don't know. And it's always cracks me up about myself. I'll think I'll feel really certain about something. And then I learn something new about it. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. So we really don't know what we don't know. And I love that Karen has a TED Talk on that. And I've shared her TED Talk on my different social media and there's a link to it in the show notes. So I encourage you to Try not to be so certain about everything and to just be open. It's good to know what you do know, and it's also good to find that balance in saying, Okay, I might not know everything. <laughs> so, if we find that balance and want to mention, if you want to go watch Kieran's TED talk, you can go to pricelessprofessional.com forward slash superstar paradox, all one word, and you'll get links to the talk and the books that she mentioned. Um, and I've already ordered the book Solve for Happy and the author's Mo Gaudet, G-A-W-D-A-T. And I'm going to also order the other book by Tom Rath. And I have all of that in the show notes at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash superstar paradox, where you can get all the links and the transcript. Also want to mention that Audible supports podcasts like this and they do have a great service that I haven't mentioned lately, but I use Audible all the time. When my husband and I drove to Indiana for Thanksgiving, we listened to an audiobook. But if you are not already an audiobook member, you can get a free audio download. So if you want to get the Solve for Happy or any of the other books that Kieran recommended, you can go over to our link audibletrial.com forward slash wake up eager workforce and you'll get a free audiobook download and a, with a 30 day free trial. And if you decide you don't want to continue, you get to keep the free audiobook. So go to audibletrial.com forward slash wake up eager workforce. audibletrial.com forward slash wake up eager workforce. There's over 150,000 titles. You can listen to them on your phone, on your Android, your Kindle, your MP3 player. Uh, It's just an awesome, awesome service, and uh, there's some great books there that you can go listen to. So as I mentioned, when we started, if today's episode or other episodes inspire you, or give you results, let me know about it. I'd love to hear, hear from you. And if you reach out, I promise it will be seen and responded to, and you can always reach me at Susie at com. And you can also get all of our contact information at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Susie. You can always leave us a, re- a review on iTunes or at Apple Podcasts. And that always helps people find us and just lets me know that you're listening. The certifications were talked a little bit about today because we talked about assessments and different motivators and interests. find out more about that at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash certification. So I have another episode that I'm actually recording tomorrow with the chief business officer of TTI Success Insights, which is my main assessment partner. His name is Rodney Cox, and we're going to talk about assessment validity. I had recently previewed a book called The Personality Brokers, where they critique and say basically that some of the different assessments out there are just are not very credible. And they talk about Myers Briggs as being psychologically credible as a buzzfeed quiz, is the verbiage from the book. And I like Myers Briggs and I've used it, but they make a strong argument about credibility and validity and that that particular tool was well below acceptable levels in validity. And so they just talk about all of that in the book, The Personality Brokers. So what I wanted to do is have Rodney come on and talk about Assessments and validity and reliability and what are the top three signs to know whether your assessment is valid? What questions should you ask? What difference does it make? Um, And then we're also he's very interesting. You know, he's a technology guy. He's a sales guy. He runs a ministry. And so I'm going to talk to him about his life. And his journey and ask a lot of those questions that I like to ask around, you know, what has inspired you, what you consider to be success. So we'll learn a lot from him, not only about assessments and how do we know that we're using a tool that is going to be accurate and reliable, as well as we'll learn about his life. So tune in to that episode. That'll be episode 64. Thank you for tuning in today and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.